glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First John chapter 5, beginning verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. If you read verse 5, let me just say this. If you've lived the Christian life for any length of time, you read verses 4 and 5, one of the first thoughts that's going to fire through your head is it's not that simple. You don't just overcome the world by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, it is that simple. (laughs) It really is. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, then everything he says is right. Amen? If Jesus is the Son of God and he says... Um, to uh, love your enemies. If Jesus is the Son of God and He says, therefore be ye holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. If Jesus is the Son of God and He says we're to live godly and righteously and soberly in this present world, then we know that's right. We're way ahead of the game when we decide I'll never question His Word because He's the Son of God. If he's the son of God, he has the power to save me from my sins because he died and he lives. If he's the son of God, he has the power that I need to overcome temptation. I'm telling you, everything you face is answered in this belief that Jesus is, not was, not is going to be, but is the son of God. He is who the Bible says he is. The Son of God is my creator. The Son of God died in my place. The Son of God conquered every temptation. Remember, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2 tells us that he's able to succor us or run along and assist us because he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But he experienced the the pressures of sinning in a lost world without yielding to that. And so we know one person, look, if you said, you know, I'm facing a great temptation and I would like to get counsel from somebody that's faced a similar temptation but is no longer under that, you might be able to find another human that has done that. But mostly from another human, you're going to get some empathy because they're going to say, yeah, I know what it's like to sin too. But from Jesus, you're going to get the strength you need to succeed. One of the things I believe Satan has a lot of God's people over a barrel with is believing that the expectation put forward in the Scripture by the Holy Spirit of God of how we're to live the Christian life is idealistic and impossible. That's not true. We look at at how certain Christians live. We look at the New Testament template of Christianity. We say, well, those are heroes of the faith. I've... I don't know, it seems like I said this recently, but I think it's very convenient many times to create superheroes of the faith because what it does is it allows us to dismiss our responsibility to live by the same standard of righteousness because we say, well, only super saints live that way. No, the fact is if Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is my Savior and He is present with me, then I have His life and His strength and I can overcome and so then that's the premise we're looking at tonight. We're going to give you three things tonight out of these, just really three verses. We'll go back to verse 3 because I believe verse 3 puts in context verse 4. Uh, and, and I want us to think this, and I want, to, I want you to, I want to, before we even get into the heart of this message, I want to kind of put this before you. I want you to ask yourself this question. Uh, is there any facet of my life that I'm living in response to an intimidating lost culture world rather than a response to the Holy Spirit of God. I read a quote today by some preacher and he said, uh, standards are not necessary. I thought, well, your standard is we don't have standards? I mean, that's stupid. I'm sorry, but that's ignorant. Standards aren't necessary. Listen, if you love God, it's going to form some principles standards in your life of how you're going to live. Uh, The Apostle Paul said to live by the same rule that he lived by. Another word for that would be mm, standard. 
Meaning, if you love God, obedience to His will is your standard. I say this, correct, standards, plural, are not necessary. You get one standard down, it'll form all the rest. I'll do what pleases Christ as communicated by His Holy Spirit through the Scripture rather than trying to appease a a rebellious world. I believe a lot of the problems we're seeing today as far as testimony among God's people, our, our, our lack of testimony in a lost world, is we have allowed the world to intimidate us away from a life that has lived exclusively to please the Holy Spirit of God, and we are at some level trying to appease them. And that gets us into trouble. I ask you to think this. Is there any aspect, or is the majority even of my life, being lived in response to a lost world, and what it expects of me, rather than a response to the Holy Spirit of God. Because any facet of my life, no matter how seemingly small or large, that is being lived in response to the intimidation of a rebellious culture, whatever that part of my life is, is sin. Period. Because here's here's what righteousness is. Obedience to God. And as God's children, our obedience doesn't save us. Our salvation enables us to obedience. And so then let's look at these few things here uh, tonight. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we do what? Keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. That's where we left off last week. God's commandments are not burdensome. They are not vexing on us. They are not overbearing or cruel or ridiculous. But again, that's what many think. Many think we're supposed to live a separated life. I'll be honest with you. Turn on your radio dial. I, I challenge you to do this. Turn on the, your radio dial. Find the local so-called Christian radio. And I want you to... Li- I don't want you to listen to it long because it will corrupt your mind. But if you listen to it a little bit, I want you to see how long... How many bookshelves at the Christian bookstore, how many radio stations you have to listen to before you hear any preacher or teacher preach on the doctrine of separation that you find in the Bible? Come out from among them and be ye... Separate. That's not a physical separation. That's not move into a cave. It's separation through the way we live. We live distinctly. We live distinctively to please our God. Not a blended life that appeals to the culture that makes us fit in. That's what's popular today among so-called evangelicalism. I'll just remind you tonight, we're not evangelical, we're Baptist. We understand the difference between being an evangelical and being a Baptist. Amen. And if you don't know the difference, one day we'll deal with that. But there's a difference. <laughs> and so then we're not Protestant, we're not Catholic, we're not evangelical. We're Baptist, meaning we adhere to the Bible. We believe this is the authority of God. The culture has nothing to do with how we live other than being a light to them. Amen. And so then having said that, we're reminded here in this text that we are called to live lives of obedience but that there is a conflict there. So the first point I want you to know is we have a conflict. There is a, we have a conflict we're dealing with, and that is we are called to live lives of love for God, and that love is manifest through obedience, but then there's a world that lives its life exactly opposite, as we said in the introduction. Verse 4, it says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. That's said in the context of living lives of obedience. He says in verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. What does overcoming the world look like? Living a life of obedience. That's what verse 3 is all about. Verse 3 is saying we live lives of obedience because we love God. That life of obedience is a life of overcoming. And we'll prove that from Scripture. The world, again, lives in rebellion. So here there is a distinction drawn. God always draws this distinction that God's family and the world are not the same. They're not the same. You understand, unsaved people can come into this building, sit in a pew that doesn't make them part of the family of God. They're still part of the world because they're still under the rule of Satan. You're not out of the world until you've been born again, until you've been saved from that by Jesus Christ. And so a couple of things are mentioned here in our conflict. Verse 3 deals with our devotion to God. And then verse 4 deals with our distinction from the world. God draws a clear line. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17. I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. Meaning they're still in the world. And here's the idea. How do you describe world? It's really the environment we live in. Our entire environment is caught up in rebellion against God. That's why the LGBT movement is... On the march, that's why it's being in your face. That's why you're told you're a hater if you don't bow down and agree. 
because the world is in rebellion against God. How many know at this point in time there are things, places that call themselves churches that are now accepting the sodomite lifestyle as normal? You know what that is? That is agreement with a world that is in rebellion against God. When a church starts changing its doctrine concerning creation to adapt theories of evolution into their, their doctrine about creation, that is making concession with a world that defies God and said, you didn't create us. When we start uh, modifying uh, our, our, our motive for why we do what we do, when we start picking up the world's motive. So, for instance, if coming to church is about gratifying lust, we have now conformed to the world. This is why our music is to be distinctly for the Lord, not for the gratification of our lust. May I say this? You can sing a hymn for the gratification of your flesh. It's still worldly. (laughs) You with me tonight? When we start doing things based on their principles, we've stepped out of our lines of distinction We are distinct from the world. We are devoted to God, devoted to obedience. That's what we're called to. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. How many of you, when you were born, were devoted to a life of obedience to God? Well, of course not. That didn't happen until you were born again. Then when you're born again, you get a new nature in you that says obey God. In fact, when you're born again, you are given an obedient nature because guess whose nature you got when you're born again? The nature of Christ. And the the nature of Christ knows no disobedience. There's no rebellion in Him. So now you've got a body that was born in this world, but you've got a new nature in you that's from above, and there is a conflict inside of you, but there's a conflict on the outside of you. There's a conflict inside. Your flesh is used to doing its things its way, and the Spirit of God says, no, 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 we don't live that way anymore. You are now called to obedience, not disobedience. Obedience. And so then, that makes us distinct. How many of us know the world is not even trying to live in obedience to God? How many know that Congress does not consider what God wants when it crafts laws? It just doesn't. Maybe one or two members do, but as a body, it does not. (laughs) How many of us understand that's just not the world we live in? Our city council does not consider, hmm, I wonder what, what, what God wants in city ordinance. They're not going to think that unless somebody calls that to their attention, that this is what we need to do. My point is this. You and I live in a world that is exactly opposite of what we are. Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, which leadeth unto righteousness, and few there be that go in thereat. Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. There's not a a moral majority. There never will be. (laughs) There's a moral minority because they're born again. And that would be those of us who are in the family of God. And so we have a conflict. We are devoted to obedience to God. If you're not say, I'm not, then you're either lost or you're in rebellion. You need to conform to Christ instead of the world. If you're saved and not devoted to a life of obedience, that's a problem. It's not okay as a child of God to allow some disobedience in your life. I understand there's pressure on us to do that. I understand we can be disobedient and we'll be chastened. But if you're saved tonight and said, well, I've just determined I'll always just, there'll be some areas I'm not going to obey God. Well, you're going to go to the woodshed. Or you're not saved, one of the two. <laughs> Are you with me? Because we're now saved, we're obedient. So let's look at a few verses that define a little more completely this conflict that we're in. Our devotion versus the world's rebellion and the distinction that that gives us in this world. Look with me, if you would, at James 4, verse 4. James 4, verse 4. The believers that James was writing to got themselves a good scolding. James would not be welcome in the average church in America today because he's too sharp with his tongue. The rebuke was too strong. Can you imagine tonight if I stood here and said, you adulterers and adulteresses? There may come a time that's what... I hope that doesn't have to happen. So James did. He said, you people who are claiming the name of Christ, but you are being like the world. You, there is strivings among you. You are biting and devouring each other. He, and he's scolding them for being like the world instead of like the Savior. Spiritual scolding, not carnal scolding, not fleshly. Uh, today, I mean, just you have to bear with me tonight. It has almost become taboo for a preacher to preach like the Bible is written. It's almost taboo. 
I can get more trouble tonight for preaching about how God's people should conduct themselves, what they look at, listen to, how they dress, than preaching about what's wrong with how the world does. I'm telling you, I know where the pressure comes. I get more pressure from God's people to not preach what the Bible says about how we're supposed to live in obedience to God. It would be better for me to, uh, to say, no, no, that's not a problem. That tells me then we have problems. Amen? If that's our mentality, we have a problem. James 4 says this. It means the world is having more influence on us than the Holy Spirit of God. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. So you're using your prayer life to facilitate your lust, and God's not going to give you that. I read a quote today. I can't remember who made it. It's a great quote about uh, prayer is not a tool for God to spoil us as his children so we can follow our spiritual leanings. Prayer is a tool that we might know God, and it's a, it's a fact. So verse 4 says this, James 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Uh, it saddens me to say this, but I'm convinced it's a fact. Among many professing believers, and I use the word professing because I don't know hearts, there seems to be more defensiveness of the world's ideology than of the Bible's theology. There seems to be more pity for the world's positions than God's. There seems to be a greater defensiveness of carnality than spirituality. There seems to be more of a defense of indifference than godliness. I think that's what James was dealing with. That there was a problem of sympathy toward a world that is in rebellion against God. I'm going to tell you something tonight. You know that if someone came to me and said, I want you to understand something. Your wife is one of the meanest, nastiest people I know, and I hate her guts. My wife's like, did you hear what he said? Yeah, I heard him. And, you know, I understand where he's coming from. We probably wouldn't make 43, Rennie. Because <laughs> that's a problem. Number one, it's a lie. Number two, you hate my wife. You might as well hate me. You with me? If there are people that rail on God, well, we understand where they're coming from. I understand where they're coming from, and I understand where they're going. We better tell them what's wrong. You with me? We don't sympathize with a world that hates God unless we hate God. And if we're saved, we don't hate God. We love God. Amen? That's what John's saying. The world hates God, but we've overcome the world. We can obey while they're disobeying, and he'll tell us why in a minute, but he just lays out the world and us. We're not on the same team. We have a conflict. They follow their lusts. We live by love. The world is at enmity with God. And James says, by the way, it doesn't mean you can't be friendly to people in the world. Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, I'm not telling you you can't eat a meal or somebody with a fornicator that's out of this world, a lost person, or you'd have to leave the world. So you can be friendly, you can be kind, you can be courteous, but not a friend of, not loyal to, not devoted to, not close with, not not tightly bound to. Make no friendship with an angry man, the Bible says. This is The idea would be this, that to befriend the world is to turn against God. And so then we are distinct in this world. We are distinctly called obedience while the world lives in rebellion. Remember 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the environment you live in, you love this corrupt system, you love sin-cursed things, you don't love God. That's just that plain and that simple. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And I'll I'll repeat this again because the Spirit of God brings it up again and again and again. You and I cannot love the world and God at the same time. We either love God or we love the world, but we cannot do both. It's impossible. We set our affection on things above or we set our affection on things on the earth, but you cannot do both. And so 1 John 2.15 reminds us of the principles that run the world. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of this world. I see a lot of attitudes and actions being defended among God's people and what, what seems to be the attitude that has overcome many of God's churches is this. 
Well, I want to do something. I enjoy it. It brings me pleasure. And you can't show me a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not, so I'm going to do it. That already is sin, even if there's not a verse on it. Because the driving force is what I want. Lust. I like it. I, I like the way it makes people look at me. I'm going to tell you something. It fixed a lot of our immodest, immoral apparel in our day. By the way, we have a deluge of that. And that's not the, that's not the root problem. It's just an indication of the root problem. Lust. Pride. If it's not rooted in lust, I like the way people look at me. It's rooted in pride. I don't want them to think I'm weird for not fitting in. You with me? That is the driving force behind so much of what we do or what we refuse to do. There's many a man who is saved or many a woman who is saved who in the, in the secular world, they don't say wicked things, but they refuse to say right things. We wouldn't dare quote a Bible verse lest we be called a Bible thumper. If you won't give the word of God out of fear of accusation of a lost person, then who's in control in that moment? The world or the Holy Spirit? The world. And what, what do we say? We spiritualize it. Well, I want to be a good witness and I wouldn't want to offend. That is a lie. That's a lie. It's conformity to the world. And what John is saying in 1 John 5 is, look, we are distinct. We're living lives. Our goal is not our own happiness. Our goal is not acceptance in the world. Our goal is not getting lost people who hate God to like. Look, if you and I can get the world to like us, we have failed. We have failed. Our job is not to get lost people to think we're great. They're not gonna. Not until they're saved or ready to get saved. Then they will. But I'm afraid too many times we're trying to win them to us, not to God. The lost person is in enmity against God. They've got to be convinced you've offended God. And in the process, there may be a little while where they don't like you. That's just the truth of it. And so there's a distinction. We are called to be a peculiar people, not like this lost world that's living in rebellion, but we're to live in obedience. And so then look, if you would, again, now we're just a few, a few more verses and we'll move on. So 1 John 2, 15 and 16 reminds us that the principles of the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What I long for, what looks good to me, what looks good on me, and what makes people think highly of me. You know what? I believe, by the way, the Spirit of God has to really work on us to get us to see the areas where we're conforming to the world. There's areas in our life, and it can be very subtle, where if we got down to the real motivation, it's just lust and pride. Just lust and pride. I want to be thought highly of. I want to be admired by men. I especially want lost men who worship and love money to think I'm great. (laughs) We may go through a lot of different things to do that. But any aspect of our life that's lived that way is not in compliance with what we've been saved to do. Our objective is obedience to God because we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. And so Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. By the way, you hear the word carnal in the Bible, in the book of Corinthians. As best I can tell, I think this is a good simple definition of carnal. When a born-again person, someone who's in the family of God, is letting the lost world determine their decisions instead of the Holy Spirit. We're thinking as men, is what what Corinthians says. That's what it means to be carnal, meaning you're thinking like natural men, though you're saved. You're making decisions like the natural lost world, but you're not. And so it's a life that is more conformed to the world than it is to Jesus Christ. I was talking to some folks today. They, they called me over. They used to come to church here some time ago, and they were talking about some decisions they were making. They said, well, you think, you think we're doing the right thing? I said, you know, I, I couldn't tell you for sure if the decision you're talking about is right. I said, here's what I know. They said, do you think that you know, perhaps the season we've had here is about God trying to you know, work out his ultimate purpose in our life? I forget how they worded it. And I said, ultimately, what God wants for you is for you to be conformed to His Son, Jesus Christ. And He can use anything in your life to do that. If you're truly saved, as you say you are, then sure, sure He's trying to use what's going on in your life, but not to accomplish your happiness or your peace in this world, but to accomplish your conformity to Christ. That's the goal. That's it. Look, the more we're like Christ, the more we're successful. That's what success is for the Christian. 
So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were, this is past tense for the saved person, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, meaning the direction the world takes, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So what are the people in the world called? Children of what? Disobedience. Disobedience. And he said, that's what you were. Your life was characterized and marked like the whole world is by disobedience. But then he says, verse 3, here's this distinction again. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. He said, here's what we used to be, children of disobedience, children of wrath. That's what we were by nature. But that's not who we are now. We used to be in sin and dead, but we've been quickened. And now we're called into obedience. I know I say this a lot, but I'm telling you, if the mentality is, why, if I'm a Christian, why can't I do? Why can't I do? Desires in and of themselves are not wrong if they're from God, but lust always leads to sin. What happens is we get sinful motives that are of this world. We say, well, that's the way they do things. And we let that influence us. And then God's will seems obstinate to us and grievous to us because we're going the opposite way of him. But listen, when obedience to God is your goal, then no commandment or rule grieves you. Look, the commandments of God only grieve the world, not us. Do I have to get baptized? No. Not if you're lost and on your way to hell. But if you're truly a believer, you don't have to, you ought to. The eunuch said it this way. Hey, what doth hinder me that I sh- from being baptized? Here, See, here is water. I have a chance to show God. I love Him. What doth hinder me from reading my Bible every day? Nothing but a lack of love for God. What doth hinder me from being holy in my conduct and conducting myself in a way so as to not encourage someone else to sin? Nothing if you love God. It's just the world that doesn't want to do what God wants. And if there's something that's clear in the Word of God and you say, I don't want to do it, then you're under the influence of the world at that point, or I am. And we we have to understand this. We are distinct. We are peculiar. We are no longer living our lives according to our passions. The Christian is not at liberty, if you love God, to pursue his or her dreams. That's what the world does. They pursue their dreams and their passions all the way into hell. But friend, we're not doing that. Your passions will lead you to hell. It's Christ who turns you from that life of sin to live a life of obedience to God. And if obedience to God is, uh, if it is something that I abhor, then there's, again, I'll say it, one of two problems. I'm either of the world or the world has gained influence over me. God says, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, but that's not who you are now. You used to live according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to your lust, but now you've been called unto obedience. Romans chapter 6 says that we were servants of sin, servants of disobedience, but now we are servants of righteousness, and the constraining force is love. And so then, Romans 12, we know the verse so well, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that what? Good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God is not something that the Christian tries to get out of. The will of God is what the Christian seeks to get into. Well, what if God... You see, if I don't want the will of God, then I don't trust Him. But listen, if Jesus is the Son of God, doesn't he best know how to spend my life? I want us to think about that. The Bible says, except a man lose his life, he'll not find it. But if we lose it, we'll gain it. What in the world does he mean? Instead of taking our life and spending it our way by our wisdom according to our lust and losing it, wasting it, we say, my life, Lord, is yours. You spend it however you see fit. If he's the Son of God, I'm thinking... He's got more wisdom than we do. I'm just thinking. (laughs) Amen? That's the heart of this. The world disagrees with God's will for their life, and so they constantly disregard and disobey his commandments. God tells husbands to love their wives. The world says, oh, 
my wife isn't fit to love. She's been X, Y, and Z. She doesn't deserve my love. The wife says, God says, the wife, submit yourselves unto your husband. I'm not submitting to that jerk. He doesn't care about me. That's what the world does. But it's not what saved people do. Saved people say, you know, I'm going to love my wife because God told me to. A saved woman says, I'm going to submit myself to my husband because God told me to. Because I love him and I'm going to obey him. And when there is a conflict with that, when there is a struggle with that, it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I didn't mean it. <laughs> it's us being more influenced by the world than by the Spirit of God. And so there's a, con- there's a conflict. The world is constantly pressuring us to be like them, to live our lives in rebellion against God too. And God says, don't do it. Don't live your life according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You've got to learn to think differently by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind, by the way? Fill it with the Word of God. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Listen, there's no way. If I'm spending, and I don't know that this is true in this church, and I pray it's not and think it's not, but I think they say the average American watches six to eight hours of television a day. And I believe that includes many people who claim to be Christians to where they are spending that much amount of time. Now, I know that most people on the television set, news and all, are safe folk who love God and want to serve God. There's no way. Listen to me. There's no way, whether you're spending that many hours on television or on Facebook or any, unless you're listening to godly people on Facebook or wherever you're at, which is unlikely, but it's possible. But if you're spending that amount of time, especially under entertainment or whatever it may be, some source produced by a rebellious world, and you spend 15 minutes in your Bible, there is no way you can do God's will in your life. No way! Because your mind is more influenced by what a rebellious world thinks than what the Holy Spirit of God thinks. You do not understand how important it is what influences your mind. (laughs) Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And I I believe this. I told my wife this recently. You just have to bear with me tonight because I'm talking about preaching to you about overcoming the world instead of being overcome by it. Uh, I believe this. We let people do things. I say we. I don't mean this is what I do. I'm speaking euphemistically. Save people. Let people do things in their living room they would never let living, breathing flesh do in their living room. You let people come in and have drunken parties on your television set? You let people curse God's good name on your television set or on your phone? or on your PC, or whatever it is, you're going to let some half-naked woman come walking into your living room on your television set? Are you serious? That's what we're going to do? Making jokes about sodomy on my television set? We would never let two people come in and live that way in our house. And what Satan could not get us to do in conforming our own lives to, he has said, let me channel my, my influence through the world right into your home. And the average professing Christian cannot even imagine living their life without the influence of the world's entertainment on their mind hours a day. And we wonder why our churches are apathetic and can't have revival because the world is having more influence than the Holy Spirit of God. Young people, you listen to me. I pray and plead with you. You cannot listen to people who hate God all day and expect to love Him. I'm not talking about being unkind. I don't mean be unfriendly. Witness to the lost. Tell them how the Lord loves them. Be a godly influence. Work hard. Be honest. Be true. Live the way God wants you to. But don't make friendship with the world. And so then we find there is a conflict. We're to be distinct. We remind you again of what Titus 2 says. I referenced part of it earlier. Titus chapter 2. And I preach this way because generally when I'm preaching to you tonight across American churches, and I fear it's not been fully accepted in this very room, this idea of a separated godly lifestyle, that that's the only way the Christian ought to live, has been generally rejected in our culture, in American churches. And there are many in this room perhaps even battling with that tonight. Am I really going to live a life exclusively in obedience to God? Well, if you're a child of God, it's the only life one should live. We've been saved out of the other life. We are now distinct. Titus chapter 2. And what is the distinguishing factor of us is we're submitted to God, not resisting Him. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. There it is again. What are we supposed to do with worldly lust? Entertain them? Toy with them? Figure out how I can love, live for God and fulfill my lust? No, deny them. Let me put it to you this way. Um, 
Somebody comes knocking on my door and they say, hey, could I come in and um, teach your children the values of chewing tobacco? Well, you seem like a nice person. Uh, I wouldn't want to offend you. Come on in. No, I'm going to say, no, no, you can't, no. I'm going to deny them, right? Well, you know, I wouldn't want them to get upset. No, you know, go away. <laughs> Yet in our lives, there are lusts that are part of our old nature. And instead of denying them, we think, is it really wrong? Is it really wrong? Is there any verse in the Bible that says I can't? Can I just say this? I'll just say it again. If you have that thought firing through your mind, I want to do this. Is there any Bible verse that says I can't do what I want? Bing, 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 bing. Red flag should be going off everywhere. Because our goal is not doing what we want. Our goal is doing what he wants. That's the old mindset. Titus 2.11, again, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. That is seriously but under control, temperately. Soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I'm going to say something definitively. If your life cannot be defined by those who know you as a righteous and godly life, you are not in God's will tonight. If those who know us best couldn't say, that is a person who is righteous. But I'm not talking about righteous in your position. If you're saved, you're righteous as you'll ever be before God. I'm talking about righteous in your dealings with others. If your character cannot be described as distinctively godly, meaning conform to God. If there's some question of, well, I know they believe the Bible, but I can't explain this facet of their life because that's not what the Bible says. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not talking about being sinless. That's not what the Bible says but godly and righteously. Then we're not in the will of God. No matter how spiritual, how many times we've read our Bible through, no matter how much we go to church, we're to live righteously and godly when in this present world. And we hear a message like this, we go, okay, I believe that. But how? They're not living righteously. And they're not living godly. There's such pressure on us to be unrighteous and ungodly. So back to 1 John. We'll try to wrap this up in the next couple minutes. There's a great conflict. We see very clearly we're called to conform to Christ, not to the world. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says, uh, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. There's that term again. Be sober. Uh, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Let me, let me look it up. I don't want to misquote it. Give me just a second. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Uh, and look into the end, look into the end, da, 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 forgive me, I'm in the wrong place. Wherefore, good of the ones of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, there it is, that's what we looked at in First John, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. You know what holiness is? Refusing to live according to lust. Saying, I'm not going to live according to my passions. I'm going to live according to pride. And so we are called to conform to God's holiness, not to the world's ungodliness. Now, our conflict, we are called to obedience. We are now obedient children of God now that we're saved. But we have a world around us that's in rebellion, that are at enmity with God. How can we live up the expectation of living righteous, godly lives of obedience well, back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 again. We can have confidence. I believe this. I believe for many a child of God today, we've listened to the world too much and they have us intimidated. We believe living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, again, is idealistic, but is really ultimately impossible. You realize that is the furthest thing from the truth. You and I, the only way we cannot... Live a sober, righteous, and godly life as if Jesus is dead. Now, if he's dead, you're just going to have to live like everybody else does. You're going to have to do the best you can. By and by, by the time you're 60 or 70, you'll just be like every other lost person out there for the most part. But if he's alive, he already overcame the world. <laughs> and so our confidence is not in our ability to think it through, not in our ability to hang in there. Our confidence is in him. Look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. If you have a new nature in you, it is a victorious nature. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And he's going to define faith in who or faith in what. 
Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Christianity is not checking a box on a, on a list of doctrines. Christianity is believing what the Word of God says about Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the Son of God, He has aptly and sufficiently saved my soul. If He is the Son of God, He has every right to rule my life. Now, if I'm questioning whether or not He can rule my life, then probably there's a question of, is He really the Son of God? But if He's the Son of God, somebody will say, well, but, but I've been hurt in churches. It has nothing to do with it. He's the Son of God. I, I've been disappointed. I failed. I've sinned again. It has nothing to do with it. He's the Son of God. Our confidence is in who He is. The object of our confidence is Jesus. He is the Son of God. The outcome of such confidence is victory. Meaning, instead of being conquered by the world's lusts and pride and temptation... Because we know He's the Son of God. I believe this. If, you, if you're saved, you're going to face temptation. You're living in a world that lives according to sin. You have a body of flesh that is habituated to sinning. But you have the Son of God in you reminding you, no, 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 that's not what I called you to. Remember, I called you to obedience. So you say, Lord, forgive me. I acted in accordance with my old nature, but I know that's not who I am. But if you're going to conquer temptation, you will not conquer temptation by trying harder. Been down that road. Doesn't work. You will not, you can memorize a lot of verses, and so you should. But if they're not memorized and, and, and applied in faith in the living Son of God, meaning I'm using this verse because I know my living Savior gave it to me to fight my enemy with, it's faith in Him that gives the victory. Jesus, how many of you know you have been whipped by temptation in your life since you got saved? Meaning, you faced a temptation based in your lust, and you thought, I know I shouldn't do this, and you did it anyway. Well, then where in the world do you get the strength to stop doing the same things you used to do? From Him. I believe God has to let us fall enough as Christians to realize we cannot live a life of victory in our power. We live it by His power. We, His power to overcome temptation is imparted to us when we simply look to Him for it. If we would do this, the moment I recognize I'm tempted to sin, I say, Lord, You know what I'm facing in my flesh right now. You know that what I want to do is wicked. But I'm asking you in Christ's precious name to give me the strength to overcome it. That sincere prayer in faith, I know what's going to happen. The living God's going to sit back and say, "Mm, let's see how you do. No, no. No, no. He lives and is ready to succor you. How many of you know you fall in temptation when you fail to look to Him in faith when you face it. That's when we fall. When we, when we yield to our flesh and we're overcome momentarily, ultimately we'll overcome. But when we're overcome momentarily the world, it is because we're not living by faith. We're living our way by, by, by impulse. And we've gone back to the old way. It means we lost our salvation. It means we're learning how to live as God's people. Our confidence is in Him. The object of our confidence is Jesus Christ. The outcome of our confidence is overcoming. Again, verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's get very practical. Who is he that overcomes the lust of the flesh? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That doesn't mean I just believe he was when he died for me. I believe he is right now. If he was delivered up for our, us and for our offenses. I believe it's Romans 8 that says, how, how much more than shall he give us all things through him? His life is imparted to us. His strength is imparted to us because he is the Son of God. Revelation 12, 11. I need to, I need to be done. Revelation 12, 11. The Bible says this concerning overcoming Satan, the God of this world. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And after, uh, I'm in the wrong place, forgive me again. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. What is the word of their testimony? Is confessing Jesus Christ. We confess him. Whosoever should, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So the outcome of our confidence is we are overcomers through what Christ has done for us and what he does for us. Revelation 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. How do we overcome? By faith. Trusting the Son of God to do for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. How many remember when you came to this understanding that I cannot be pardoned for my sins? I cannot do anything to make myself good enough for God. I'm going to have to trust Jesus to make me righteous. Now, isn't it amazing? After we get saved, we think, okay, I trusted the Lord Jesus. Now I've got to do my best for Him. Well, do your best for Him. That's fine, but it's not going to be enough. Victory is obtained the same way salvation is obtained. Overcoming the world, overcoming the lust of the flesh, overcoming the lust of the eyes, overcoming the pride of life. I can news for you. There is so much in this world right now to appeal to our sinful eyes. How do you overcome the temptation to look in lust? By the Son of God. By the Son of God. He gives you the strength to turn away from temptation and sin. And instead of being conquered, look, the world is gloating right now on how many Christians it's knocked down. Shouldn't you and I say, I am tired of the Lord Jesus Christ being made to look like He's dead. Well, the only way to show the world that He's alive is to live in victory. The only way to live in victory is to live by faith. I'm not sure He can help me. Is He not the Son of God? If He's not the Son of God, then and you're not convinced of that, then you're not saved. If you are convinced He's the Son of God, then He saved you. And He'll save you from temptation just like He saves you from hell. Amen? He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. So our confidence is in Him. The outcome of that confidence is victory. Number three. So by the way, I'll just say this very clearly, very practically. If there's a lack of victory, there's a lack of faith. We'll say that again. If there's a lack of victory, there is a lack of faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Number three. Our consolation. Our consolation is directly attached to our confidence. Verses 4 and 5 are very consoling to me. I don't know about you. I believe this. I believe this room is also full of people tonight that perhaps need more victory, but by the same token have an earnest desire in your soul to obey God. Because if you're saved, it's there. Amen? If you're saved, it may be small. It may may need to grow. But if you're saved, there's something inside you that says, "I, I would like to obey Him. I want to. And so we have to come to the point where we say, well, I can only do it by his life and by his power because he's the son of God. So our consolation, because of who the objective, object of our faith is, our consolation is in his power. First John 4, 4. You're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know one of the number one reasons I think Satan wants to get true saved people to doubt their salvation? So you can't lay hold of these promises. Well, I know that Jesus is greater than Satan, but I'm just not sure if he's in me. I mean, greater is he than any of the in the world, but that's talking to people that knew they were saved. First John is about giving us assurance. If you're trusting Christ to save you, he saved you. He, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. The question would be, did you want him to save you merely mm, from getting in trouble, or do you want him to save you from sin? I believe this. When God saves us, He gets to the point where we say, I, I am sorry that I am disobedient to God. I don't want to be. That's called repentance. And you trust Jesus to save you. Well, He didn't save you and then turn you loose. He's with you. We are consoled by His power. Greater is He that is in you. Yes, Satan is a promoter of sin, but Christ is the accomplisher of righteousness. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm fearful today that many a Christian believes that Satan has, has got the, the upper hand on God. No, 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 no. The Savior within you already conquered Satan. So it's just a matter of us stopping to trust ourselves and trusting him. And so we are consoled by his power. We should be consoled by his prosperity. John chapter 16. John 16. You realize Jesus came and faced the lust of the flesh and overcame it. He came and faced the lust of the eyes and overcame it. He came and faced the pride of life and overcame it. The three temptations you read about in Matthew chapter 4 were the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He got Jesus questioning or tried to who he really was. Are you really the Son of God? You think you are. Well, if you are, prove it by, by satisfying your own lust. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Well, if you're really the son of God, then cast yourself down off of this, this temple here and, and prove that you're the son of God. That's the pride of life. That's, that's the pride of life saying, you really are who you are. Make God prove. You tell God what to do. 
The lust of the eyes. Look at all these kingdoms. I'll, see, you see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. He faced every temptation we face, but he conquered it. John 16, 33. Don't focus. Listen, if you're saved tonight, don't focus on the amount of times you've been defeated. Focus on Christ's success over the things that defeat you. You think about what you face and defeat you and know that it has never defeated him. John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have, what's he say? Overcome the world. Is Jesus tonight intimidated by the lust of the flesh? He is not. He's already overcome it. Is he, in, I mean, honestly, does he sit here and think, oh, no, I don't know what to do for my people. There's so much sin around them. Oh, no. Hey, look at He already overcame all that. The only problem is we don't, we don't look to him for deliverance. That's it. We need to look to him for deliverance. And so then his power, we should be consoled by that. His prosperity, his power and prosperity mean nothing if he's not present. So we should be consoled by his presence. Greater is he that is what? In you than he that is in the world. The fact of the matter is this, Hebrews 13, 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. As the pastor of this church, I have a burning desire in my heart not just to see this church exist. Our goal is not just, well, I hope we're existing in 25 years. Not just to see labor sent forth but to see a body of people who are living in victory by the life of Jesus Christ. To see a people instead of defeated by sin and iniquity. To see a group of young people instead of defeated by by the internet and all the filth that's put forward on it. To see marriage instead of defeated by the adultery in our world. To see godly men instead of defeated by the covetousness that's in our world, living lives of victory over that, living lives of contentment, living lives of purity, living lives of holiness. But I'm as convinced as I'm standing here, the only way to do that is by looking to our Lord and Savior, saying, Lord, I trust that because you're the Son of God, you can give me the victory that I cannot give myself. You with me tonight? Do we have to lust like the world does? Do we have to live in pride like they do? We don't, but here's why. Because the one who already conquered all that lives inside of us. I don't know about you tonight. If you're sitting there saying, but that's the way I want to live. You've got some getting right to do. Something's wrong there. But if you're saved here tonight, you say, no, seriously. I wrestle and I struggle and I battle because my flesh wants to sin. But I really would like to live a life for God. You can I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The discipline in your life is not learning how to outsmart the devil. The discipline in your life is learning how to trust Jesus Christ to deliver you from him in the moment of temptation. Mm-hmm.